if you would kindly make your way in. Anybody know what Thursday is? Thanksgiving. That's right. One person was ready. There's a, somebody said there's a rule. It's like, I don't understand why the Christmas decorations are. I love the Christmas decorations. But I heard somebody say, I don't want to see a tree until I see a turkey. (laughs) We love it. So this time of year, there's a lot of kind of stress that goes on. And for some people, um, Thanksgiving becomes a stressful opportunity. And then this holiday season is a very stressful opportunity. And, uh, you know, there's the stress of family members. And there's the stress of having to put everything together. And then there's the stress of wanting everything to be just right. And wanting everything to be perfect. So we're doing a series called Your Stress, His Rest. And today we're going to talk about worry. Anybody worry? Huh? Anybody want to admit they worry? Yeah? <laughs> worrying. It's not what, eats, what you eat so much as what eats you. That's what worrying is. That actually is what causes a lot of health conditions. Not so much even what you're eating, your diet, but it's the stress that's related to worry that re- increases blood pressure, that uh, lowers the immune system, that you know causes all kinds of heart disease and uh, aneurysms and headaches and things like that. And it's co- it comes from uh, comes from uh, worrying. And my favorite is lack of sleep. Can't worry because you, you can't sleep because you're worrying. And that always works well, doesn't it? Not sleeping. Well, you're a happy person when you don't sleep, aren't you? Huh? And then, then when you're worrying, and then you have, you're irritable, and you're upset, and you're mad. And uh, worrying is a major cause of stress. And I like words that call, let's just call it etymology, the study of words. And so the word worry comes from an old English word, and it means to gnaw. Gnaw. Right? So when a dog would be gnawing on a bone, they would say, oh, that dog is worrying the bone. Right? So when you have things that are happening to you and you're worrying about things, don't you feel like somebody's gnawing on you or something's gnawing on you? It's just gnawing and it's driving you crazy. That's worry. The good news is, is that the Bible has a lot to say about worry. Jesus is not ignorant of the human condition. God is not ignorant of how you are and what you feel and what you're going through and all of that stuff. Hebrews actually tells us, that he was touched in all ways as we are and tempted in all ways as we are. And he understands God became man. So it's not like, oh, how do you understand? You know, you don't understand what it's like to be human. You're God. It's like, yes, he does. God became man. He identifies with you. He understands. Jesus actually talks in Matthew chapter 6, and he speaks a lot about worry. What I've discovered in the Bible is that when Jesus teaches, he tends to go right into the heart. He goes right into the core of the problem. And so Jesus, when you're reading the Gospels and you're hearing Jesus' instructions, he's going after core issues. He'll deal with the core of what the problem is. He goes right at the root. And then when you read the epistles, which are the letters like Romans through Revelation, essentially, you read those books and those letters are typically giving you practical instructions, the how-tos. But Jesus is dealing with the core problem. And so he'll go right at the core problem. This is what you'll see even in this passage. He says, I tell you, don't worry about everyday life. Don't worry about if you have food or drink or clothes. Life's more than that, and your body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't plant or harvest. They don't store into barns, but your heavenly Father takes care of them. 
aren't you more valuable than they? And here's the problem. The people didn't understand their relationship, and they didn't understand their identity. You're more valuable. They didn't understand their value. And these are people who say, I love God. I'm following Jesus. These were faithful people at this time. And Jesus is specifically talking to the faithful people. He said, you're more valuable than they. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work to make their clothing, yet Solomon, who was a king, was not clothed in all of his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as these. And if God so cares wonderfully for these wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not care for you? Why do you have so little faith? So why do you worry about these things? What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These are the things that dominate the thoughts of the unbeliever. You see the contrast? Worry dominates the thought of the unbeliever. Jesus is saying worry is not to dominate the thoughts of the Christian, of the believer. And he's going to deal with that. And then Paul's going to show us what to do with that. It's not who we are. But your heavenly Father already knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom above all else and live what is right. And he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has its own troubles. Today's trouble is sufficient. What Jesus is saying in this passage, among many things, is that worry is unnatural. We're the only creatures that actually worry. Your dog's not freaking out right now whether or not if you're coming home. You're going to come home, that dog or your cat's going to be passed out, right? And as soon as he comes in the door, your dog or your cat is not worried about whether or not it's going to get fed. It's going to walk right up to you and go, uh... It's not worried about if you have any food in the cupboard or anything. The dogs, cats, birds, they don't worry. We're the only ones that worry. And what worry is, as a result, worry, we inherited worry as part of our fall. It's part of our fallen nature. So what Jesus is saying is don't do this because it's not who you are. You're in me now. You're in Christ now. You are not this person anymore. Worry is part of your human condition. And I know it's real easy to say, don't worry. You know, Jesus is perfectly confident. Jesus is supremely confident. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows it all, so he can simply go, don't worry, because he knows it all, right? But it's hard for us to understand that and say that he's not worried. So worry is part of our human condition. Worry comes from hopelessness, the feeling that it's not going to work out, the feeling that it's not going to happen, the feeling that I'll never get there. That's worry. One of the ways you deal with hopelessness and worry is you accept the worst of the situation and you have hope in spite of it. Oftentimes people don't, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, so now accept that and have hope in spite of it. So worry is unnatural to us. And so what we have to do as believers is that when we understand and we see ourselves worrying, and I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to tell you that you'll never worry because you will. But when you see yourself worrying, realizing that you're out of position, you're not in the right place. You understand what I'm saying? You're over here. That's not where God wants you. He doesn't want you in a position of worrying. And he's going to show us how. It's unreasonable because it can't change anything. Can worrying make your life longer? It can make your life what? Shorter. That's right. So worry is unreasonable. It can't do anything. Worrying can't change the past and can't change the future. And it's unnecessary. And this is the key to the whole point. Because this, again, deals with our identity, and it deals with who we are, and it deals with our faith. And that's what Jesus keeps attaching himself to. Why do you not have faith? Sin of unbelief, right? Talk 
to Christians, this is really a thing that we have to understand. As a Christian, Jesus is always dealing with your unbelief. He is always confronting your unbelief. You say, oh no, I'm saved. The sin of unbelief, I don't have the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief, that there's two types of sin, harmatia, harmatonal. There's the sin of offense that says, we're God, I don't need God. That's the sin that condemns. When you come to Christ, that sin is removed, but Christians still sin. It's a harmatano, and it means to miss the mark. Missing the mark does not condemn you. Missing the mark keeps you off your destiny. There's two different words for sin in the Bible. It's important to understand that. We've misunderstood the doctrine of sin completely because we don't understand the language. The sin of unbelief, believers still have. You can believe Jesus that you're going to heaven and your sins are forgiven, but you refuse to believe him at the point of his promises. You refuse that you are who he says you are. You refuse to take steps into the world that he called you into. Or you refuse to do the things that he's told you to do. That's the sin of unbelief. So it's possible to be a believer and an unbeliever at the same time. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus is always confronting your belief. The Lord is trying to take you into faith and the enemy is warring against your faith. It's always an attack on your heart. And it's always an attack on your faith. That's the point. Jesus is challenging you at your faith. That's the point. He wants you to step into faith. Read the Gospels. And always, what is Jesus looking for? He's looking for faith. 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 So don't worry about these things. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your Heavenly Father knows your needs. He's dealing with identity. The people were looking at their circumstances and they didn't understand who they were. Your father knows your needs. If you have a father, that means you are a what? Child or a son or a daughter. That means you are somebody. He didn't say God knows your needs. He said your father, the one who intimately is associated with you. And just so you know, God's, God's way of establishing his relationship with his children is not our idea. He came up with it. He created you to be a son. He created you to be a daughter. Marriage and family on the earth is a mirror and a model of how God wants to relate. Husband, wife, son, daughter. He wants us to understand that as a dynamic because that's the dynamic of the kingdom. He's saying, listen, don't worry. You are not ordinary. You are not an unbeliever. The bread is for the children. God will provide for you. The Father will take care of you. I tell the story of the Syrophoenician woman all the time. Syrian Phoenician. It's about as outcast as you could get from a Jew, right? For a Jew, this woman was outcast. She was Syrian and she was Phoenician. In other words, Jewish people ethnically did not like her or her culture or her kind. Yet she comes to Jesus and Jesus is like, you know, she's like, heal my daughter. He said, the bread is for the children. Huh? See the picture? contrast here. You don't get that. My children get that. And she said, that she said yes, Lord, but even the, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. And he said, grace your faith. You have what you want. What is he looking for? He's looking for faith. He was looking for her to believe that he was generous. He was looking for her to believe that he would give to her what she came to him because he was capable and he was generous and he was willing. There's a sin of unbelief that we need to confront. Is Jesus capable? Yes. Is he willing? Yes. Is he generous? Yes. We need to confront those issues in our lives where we do not believe that he is capable, we do not believe that he is willing, and we do not believe that he is generous. 
all of those things are not true. She says, what shall we eat? We have special privileges as sons and daughters. That's who we are. Your kid's got special privileges. The neighborhood kid isn't going to come and ask you for a Christmas present, right? Or whatever, you know, I want, I'm going over to your house for Christmas and here's my Christmas list. Your neighborhood kid isn't going to do that, but your own child will, right? And so that child that's in your home has special privileges. Your children have more privileges than the neighborhood kids because they're part of your house. It's the same with us. We have greater privileges because we're members of his household. And so he's saying, how can we not have faith? Believe this. Understand this. Know this. He says, what's the price of sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow falls to the ground. It's Matthew chapter 10, not 6. Not a single sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing it. The very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. In other words, God sees, God cares, and you have worth. That's what he's saying. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than the whole of, uh, than a whole flock of sparrows. This is always our question. Does he see me? Does he care? Am I worried? Do I have value? Do I have any interest? Does he have anything? Is there any value and worth that I possess? And the answer to all those questions are yes. The Lord sees you. The Lord cares. And you have value and worth. That's the point. One of the problems that happens oftentimes as Christians is while we may believe those things are true, we wonder how are they not active in our life in a more consistent basis. They're not active in your life in a more consistent basis because of an absence of relationship. We have to learn to engage this relationship. We have not because we ask not, understand? We, we believe wrongly, or we're not asking, or we're not in a position to receive, or we're not operating according to the premises of the promises. Those are the problems that we have. But the truth of the matter is, is that he does see, he does care, and you do have value, and you do have worth in every way, in every way. The kingdom is for the believer. The neglect of power within the church is absolutely an offense. They asked a famous guy, he died, when I remember this guy, when he died, the guy had accomplished a lot for the Lord, and he said, what's the greatest tragedy that you see among the, what is the problems that you see within the churches today, or what do you think that could be different within the church? And he said, the greatest tragedy in the church is Christians leaving their harvest in the field. They neglect the things that Jesus died to give them. Do you have any understanding what he died to give you? Have you ever thought about that for a minute? What did he die to give me? And here's what we're content with. I talked to you about it before. It's like the entrance to the park of Disneyland. We're, we're just happy just to get in the gate. Okay, you're happy. You're in the gate. Woo, strike up the band, let the confetti fly. But what I would tell you is, is Jesus is not happy with you only being in the gate. He's not happy with you only being in the gate. He's bought an entire kingdom for you and called you into rule and reign and called you into dimensions of, of dominion that you have no understanding about or no under, no, eye has not seen or ear has heard nor has even entered into the heart of those the things that God has prepared for them that love him. It's beyond what you can see. It's beyond what you can hear. And it's beyond what you can imagine. That's what he says. And yet we're content to stay at a gate. We're content, oh, I'm just a, just, just a, just a servant staying inside the gate. He's given you the park, man. Enter the park. I don't know how to get on the ride. Well, just practice and figure it out. I don't know how to make this thing work. Well, just practice and figure it out. The kingdom's there. It's a partnership. He died to give it to you. And we neglect it. We neglect it. If Jesus said you can have something, by, by all means, you should go for it. He bled for it. Do you know that? He bled to remove the curse of poverty. In case you didn't know that. He became poor. Why? Why? Anybody know the answer? 
text in a verse. He became poor so that you might become rich. And here's what we say. Oh, rich in grace, Kevin. Rich in grace. Really? Really? Beloved, I wish that you would prosper in being health even as your soul prospers. Well, he wants me to prosper spiritually. Is that what he said? He didn't say that. Prosper, be in health as your soul prospers. It is God's will that you prosper. It is God's will that you be in health. I don't know about that. What does the Bible say? He died to give it to you. He died to give it to you. And so at the very least, we are obligated to press into the things that Jesus said we could have. He said you could have it. Bold lion. Huh? You ever have kids? I, I mean, you know, I'm, I was always more the timid one. The scriptures taught me, got, taught me boldness. The spirits taught me boldness. But as a child, I always used to see the more bold kids step forward and get what they wanted. Anybody ever notice that? Huh? The bold and aggressive kids step forward and gets what they wanted. The timid one tends to stand on the side. And no, maybe they'll get something handed to them or something. But that bold kid will step right into the circle. That's exactly what the Bible says. Come boldly. Step in. Access what is yours. Get it. There's no niceties when it comes to that kingdom. It's yours. You can have it. You can have it. It's yours. It's yours. In in fact, he's actually more upset that we don't access it than he is that we do. He corrects our lack of faith. He's like, how could you possibly not believe I wouldn't do it? You think I'm limited? You think I'm powerless? You don't think I can take care of you? How could you possibly believe that? That's what he's saying. He doesn't look at us and go, how could you possibly believe I would do that for you? I haven't, I'm not going to do that for you. You know, I saw you smoking a cigarette out behind a rock. Huh? I saw you coming out of an R-rated movie that wasn't about me. How could you possibly think I would do anything for you? That's our perspective. We think because we did something that he might perceive as wrong, he, his love is removed from us. That couldn't be further from the truth. How can you not have faith? He corrects us for not wanting his abundance. He corrects us for not wanting his generosity. He corrects us for not understanding his purposes. You don't know what spirit you're of. You don't understand my purpose. That's the point. He never corrects you for wanting more. Biggest revelation I got was when Peter walks up to Jesus and goes, we gave up everything for you. What do we get? Would you ask that question? I don't think I would ask that question standing next to Jesus. Hey, man, I gave up everything for you. What's in it for me? Peter did, he didn't look at Peter and rebuke him. I don't know if you're aware of that verse. He didn't go, you capitalist pig, how dare you ask me that? What do you think, I'm the stock market? Don't you think I am? He didn't say that at all. He said, no one has given up anything. And he lists it, houses, brothers, mothers, family members. No one has given anything for me that what? Will not be rewarded. When? In this life and the one to come. We don't have our theology straight. We got some stinking thinking and some false teaching in the church. Oh, well, he's going to reward me in the sweet by and by. Absolutely. But he's also going to reward you in the rotten here and now. Okay? It's both. That's what the Bible says. Well, I don't believe that. Well, then you'll never have it. You'll never have it. Unbelievers were put out of the room. People love Jesus, but they're unbelievers. Read your Bible. Read how Jesus dealt with even his followers who didn't believe him. He put them out of the room. 
they did not have access to the deeper things that he was. They did not have access to his power. They had very limited access to his presence, and they did not have access to his purpose. Read it. It's all there. He had no problem. Even looked at Peter. You got somewhere to go? You don't like this either? You don't like what I say? You don't like the fact that I say I'm God? You don't like the fact that I say that I can and I will? You don't like that? That offends you? They came to Jesus and said, oh, don't you know the Pharisees were offended at you? We can't offend them by what you're teaching. You're teaching things that they don't believe. And they're offended and they're mad. And Jesus didn't even, he didn't even blink. He's like, what? Well then, I've got something else to say. If that offends you, here's something else for you. He's a rock of offense, people. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He will offend your thinking every single time. You think you know him, he will offend you. You think you got it all figured out, and you think your theological position is correct if it's not in line with his Bible, he will offend you. He will offend you. You think he's one way when he's not? That's what he told Peter. You're mindful of the things of men. This is important. He does not offend the heart. This is the key. Jesus never offends the heart. You allow your heart to be offended. Jesus offends the mind. He comes after thought patterns. He comes after methods of thinking. And so what we do is we get offended in the way that we think. Well, I thought you were like this. Well, I'm not. I'm like this. Well, I'm offended at that because I always thought you were this way. And the way I see you makes me safe and secure. And Jesus is like, I'm not interested in your safety and security. I'm interested in your character. So he will offend the way that you think, but he will not offend the heart. You let the heart be offended. What happens with an offended mind? The word offense, so you understand biblical terms, the word offense means to push away. Jesus, so let's think of it in the mind. You have a mindset, and so you have a way of thinking, and you're standing in this position. And Jesus comes, or a revelation comes, or a teaching comes that offends you and knocks you off that position. Challenges every way that you have ever thought before. It's the offense of the mind, okay? What an offense of the heart does is push away from relationship. I just talked to a guy, talking with a dude, he's going to a friend of mine's church in uh, uh, Harbor, and I was talking to him on the phone, and I said, hey, you've been going to Harbor for five years. I said, what, what have you been doing since you've been, you know, he's telling me all the stuff he's been doing, and I said, you know, what was challenging for you when you started going there as opposed to the tradition you were with? Because he comes out of a different tradition. And he said to me on the phone just yesterday, he said, what challenged me more than anything, he said, when I started going to Harbor, I was offended in my mind. He said, the way that they were teaching, the, the, the style that they presented worship, and the way that they taught was completely different. And he said, and I was not familiar with the things of the Spirit at all. And Harbor, if you know anything about Harbor, it's a friend of my church, if you know anything about them, they're, they're very open with spiritual things. They don't have a problem with it. And he said, it was very offending to me in my mind because I didn't understand what they were doing and why. And he said, but my heart told me I was in the right place. And he said, I did not let the offense of my mind affect my heart. And I was like, man, that's the best word I heard all week. Jesus has no problem offending the way that you think. He will not offend your heart. If you're, let's say it with me. If my heart, come on, say it. If my heart is offended... It is because I am allowing it. God is not offending your heart. 
don't you ever say that God offends your heart. You don't have a problem saying God's offending your thinking because he does, but he does not offend the heart. If your heart is offended and you are pushing back from relationship, that's you. That's not Jesus. So you know. Well, that offends me. Well, then you're offended at that too. I don't know what to tell you. There's a power in the spirit of offense. There's a, there's a power in that, and it's the enemy. There's a positivity in offense, and there's a negativity in offense. While Jesus is trying to renew your mind, the enemy is trying to offend your heart. He's trying to get you to break relationship. He's trying to get you to push away. That's what he's trying to do. Where the Lord is trying to expand your realm of thinking and give you revelation and insights into realms that you don't know, the enemy is attacking your heart. Which one are you going to go with? So it's okay if he offends your mind. It's okay. I don't mind Jesus freeing my mind. Anybody watch Matrix? Huh? You guys any movie fans out there? Red pill, blue pill, right? Take the red pill, go down the rabbit hole. Boom, free your mind. That was one of the things Morpheus said to him. He said, the only way you're going to make this work now that you're in this, right? Now that you're able to see it as it actually is, the only way you're going to make it work is if you free your mind. Remember when he was going to jump the building? I don't know if you're familiar with the movie or not. I've seen this movie like 18 times. But anyway, like uh, when he jumps the building, when Morpheus jumps the building and then he tells Neo to jump and Neo can't, Neo can't figure it out, he's like, how do I do it? And he goes, free your mind. Free your mind. Get past your limited list of thinking, your limitedness of thinking. I shared first service, I said a couple weeks ago too, everything that's born comes out head first. You're going to come out of where you are. You're going to access the kingdom. You're going to have to come out head first. You're going to have to change the way that you think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Oh, we speak it as poetry. But when the rubber meets the road, this is where it gets really hard. And he challenges us at the way that we think. He calls us from where we are to where we need to be. And he challenges our thinking. And it's okay. It's okay. Next time you're offended in your mind, go to the Lord and go, show me when I am not understanding. Show me what I am not understanding. Show me what I am not learning and what I have not learned. And he's not going to shazam you. He might, but he's gonna, he'll take that as an invitation and he'll take you down the process of learning and he'll show you. I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me. I cannot tell you how many times the Lord has offended my thinking. I cannot tell you that. And you know why he does it? Because I have to lead you. And if I cannot lead you to where I have not been, right? You cannot live on yesterday's manna. He told the people, you don't get the manna from yesterday and keep it. You have to live on the manna that is now and what I'm showing you. And so it's not an issue like for a leader or for a pastor. You have to press in to truth. And the minute you stop, and we stop at these levels of comfortability, but the, but the Lord will offend you. He's shown me many times I think I know what I'm doing, and I don't know anything. Because I'm doing it without him. And you know, it seems it's such, that's such a nuance to say that you're doing it without him because you're really not, but in fact you are. There's some core things that you're doing that are not with him, even though you're like, oh, I'm all for you, Jesus, I'm serving, you know, we're serving. And you guys experience the same thing. So that's the deal. And so what Jesus does is Jesus always deals with the core issues. What Paul's going to do is he's going to deal with the practical issues. So when you read the epistles, epistles are dealing with the practical. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is going right at the heart. He's dealing with the way you're thinking. The root of the problem is the way that you're thinking, not the way that you're acting so much as the way that you're thinking. 
So Philippians says, always be full of joy. Okay, now Paul's going to get into, and this is the answer to the question, how do we not worry? Next slide. How do we not worry? When we not worry, he says this, always be full of joy. I say again, rejoice. Everyone that sees that you are unselfish and considerate in all that you do, remember that the Lord is coming soon. So we can pause right there. One of the ways, without, I'm not, I'll talk about joy in a second, but one of the ways that you get out of worry is not thinking about yourself. Most worry, you're involved in the equation. When you're worrying, you're oftentimes thinking about you. So he says, be considerate and unselfish. So the way, one of the ways that gets worry off you is when you start taking care of somebody beyond yourself. And then another way you get worry off you is that you remember the Lord is coming soon. No matter what is happening to you, this is not the finality. No matter what you're going through, this isn't it. Aren't you glad? Right? This isn't it. Our life is in that kingdom. Our life is fulfilled in that world. The Lord is coming. And you and I get all kinds of wonderful things. Everything shifts when He comes. We experience it now, but we know it in full when He comes. Come on. Don't worry about anything. What a statement, right? Yeah, you, don't you love that when you're really freaking out? And somebody looks at you and goes, don't worry. What do you mean, don't worry? You know? You ever have that experience? Maybe it's just me. So here's the Bible telling it to you. Don't worry. Hey, man, don't worry. Why don't we worry? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank Him. Some more keys right here. If you do this, let's just say it together. If. I do this. I will experience the peace of God. Say this with me. Promises have premises. Every promise in the Bible is activated according to a premise. In other words, here it is, but you have to insert the key. You have to do this. Even salvation, even salvation is a promise. God will forgive you. God will restore you. God will put His Spirit in you. God will shift you and make you a new creation if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. If. So that promise is only activated when we enter into the premise. Everything that He promises has a, pro- has a premise to it. There are keys. Jesus told Peter there are keys to the kingdom. It's like having a car with not having any keys. Right? If you have a car that's sitting out there, we could have a Ferrari or a Lotus or anything like that sitting right out there, and it could be yours. You could have the title to it. But if you don't have the key, it's just, it's just taking up space. It's a work of art. It's a picture. It's something cool to look at. You can you know, do some Facebook posts while you're laying on it and everything. But it's absolutely useless according to its created design because you don't have a key for it. It's the same thing with the promises. The promises are given to us, but we have to go in the door with a key. You know, we enter houses with keys. We go through doors with keys. We start engines with keys. Keys. We run programs with keys. Operating keys. He says, don't worry. You say, how is that possible? Well, here's the first thing. Rejoice. He says, have joy. Be full of joy. He's like, be full of joy. Okay, be full of joy. Be full of joy. See, like, I've looked at Peter. Peter's a very interesting character if you look at how he interacted with Jesus. He didn't always interact with Jesus the correct way. Huh? And so we all don't want to be like Peter. But there was a lot of positive attributes that Peter had. Peter always asked the question everybody else was thinking. And you know what he got? The answer. Jesus will make a statement, just throws it out there, and everybody rocks back and forth like, yep, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yep. Oh, yeah. 
godly. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. No problem. I got that figured out completely. Peter would be the one, what does this mean? What does it mean? Jesus will make statements like this. And he'll say, or the Bible will say, be full of joy. He'll make statements like that. And you can leave it as poetry now until he comes. Or you can ask the question, what does it mean to be full of joy? I'm not full of joy all the time. Are you? What does it mean to be full of joy? When am I full of joy? When am I not full of joy? How do I get to be full of joy? And one of the things it tells you is rejoice. Re means do it again, which means go get it. So what's that tell me? It tells me that joy has to be gotten. I have to go get it. It's not just going to come to me. i got to go get joy. And so what's the next question? I'm teaching you to ask questions. How do you get joy? Glad you asked. Romans 14. The kingdom, the rule and the reign of God. Anytime the word kingdom means, God, the Bible uses kingdom, it means the rule and the reign of God. Do, do, is, are things better when Jesus is in charge? You ever had Jesus in charge of something? You're like, wow, this is really cool. This is amazing. Right? If you're the disciples and you're walking around, Jesus is in charge. Hey, Lord, we owe some money to the temple. And we're like broke. He's like, I'll just go down to the lake. Oh, the fish is going to come up and give you some coins. Cool. Lord, we're hungry. What do you got? Got some fish and chips. Cool. Boom. Bam. I mean, you know, miracles, all kinds of stuff. Jesus is in charge. It was like a show. And you wonder when they look at them and they lament. And they're like, don't go, Jesus. Don't leave us. Because things were really great when Jesus was in charge. It was amazing. And so with the word, when it uses the word kingdom, it means that God wants to, that Jesus wants to rule and reign. He wants to be in charge. So what does it mean for God to be in charge? The kingdom of God is given to us. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of God's rule and reign. I'm going to offend your mind right now. It's not the gospel of salvation. If you find a verse that tells me it's the gospel of salvation, please show it to me. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel of the kingdom. So what does that mean? Does salvation not matter? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Salvation doesn't matter. Salvation is the first part of the gospel of the kingdom. Salvation is in the gospel of the kingdom. You understand that? What we've done is we've separated the gospel of salvation from the gospel of the kingdom. When the gospel of salvation doesn't even exist in the scripture, it's a fatal flaw. It's a fatal flaw. Because we're, we're thinking in terms only of salvation. When we sit there and say it's the gospel of salvation, what are we thinking? All we're thinking about is salvation. When it's the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus is again challenging your thinking, and he's saying, what is the gospel of the kingdom? You get the point? Now we think not in terms of only salvation. We think in terms of dominion. We think in terms of the rule of reign of God. What does it look like the rule and reign of God to come into my marriage? Because it's the gospel of the kingdom. What does it look like for the rule and reign of God to come into my family, my children, my workplace, my money, my future, my hopes? What does that look like? Because it's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the point. The kingdom is not eating and drinking. In other words, this kingdom, the rule and reign of God is not ordinary. But it's in righteousness. What does that mean? What is right to God? You want to experience the kingdom? Start doing what is right to God, and you'll experience the kingdom. And there's another question. Well, what is right to God in my marriage? What is right to God in my workplace? What is right to God in my habits? What is right to God in my future? What is right to God in my money? What is right to God in my job? You see the, you see the pattern of questions? 
righteousness. We all go, oh, righteousness. Now I know what righteousness means. I understand this because I asked the question. I heard it all my life. And I've, I've watched scripture after scripture, hard scripture be taught to me. And it's been taught to me as if it was a poem. And I would actually go, what the heck does righteousness mean? And Jesus would go, Kevin, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. You want to know what righteousness is for me? And he go takes you on this journey. Because righteousness is what is right to me. Not what is right to you. Not what is right to the culture. Not what somebody's opinion is. If you want to do what righteousness is, it's whatever is right to me. And so then he asked those questions. The kingdom is in doing what is right to God. Peace and joy. Where, where is joy? Where is it? Read those last three words for me. Three or four words. In the Holy Spirit. So where do we get joy? With the Holy Spirit? Is that what it said? Watching the Holy Spirit? Talking about the Holy Spirit? So what's the next question? What does it mean to be in the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Do you know what it's like to be in the Holy Spirit? That's what he's talking about. When you're in the Spirit, that peace, you know, we worship. We do the worship to set up the heart to receive the Word. The worship comes. The Spirit of God, the presence comes. And now all of a sudden you're peaceful. Wow, this is good, man. You have joy. You know, that's what it means to be in the Spirit. And so if we want no stress, we have to rejoice, which means we have to go get joy, which means we have to get in the Spirit. You see the pattern? This is activating your faith. This is activating what Jesus died to give you. He died to give you this. You can't do this by observing it. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's the book of Acts. We have to do something. We have to get up and do something. We have to physically push ourselves into these ways. So if we want to break off stress, one of the ways he tells us is don't, would not worry, is to get into the Spirit and have joy. Secondly, pray about everything. What does that mean? There's another question. What the heck does that mean? Development of a prayer life is essential to the believer. It's not optional. You know what God will teach you? You know what Jesus will teach you? You know, he will absolutely teach you that you need to pray. He will absolutely teach you you need to pray. He will allow life, circumstances, situations, your own limitations to box you in to show you that you need to pray. You say, I don't know how to pray. Huh? I don't know how to pray. Well, that's the whole point. Is it, you know, it's kind of like, I hate to use this example, throwing your kid in the swimming pool and telling him to swim. You know, sometimes prayer forces us into this position where we have to learn something or circumstances. And now all of a sudden we need to learn what prayer is. Prayer, the Christian does not pray because we're, we don't know how, right? That's why. We don't know how to pray. That's why the disciples said, Lord, we don't know what how to pray. Did, did these Jewish boys never learn how to pray? Are you crazy? They were taught to pray from the time they could speak. So what were they asking? We don't pray like you. There's something different about when you pray. We pray, we pray Baruch Hashem Adonai, you know. We pray the liturgical prayers that the, that the rabbi gave us, and we read them from the book. But when you pray, something else is different. And they didn't say, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us to heal. They didn't say, teach us to preach. They didn't say, teach us to evangelize. But what they did say was, teach us to pray. That's what they said. Because why? They realized that all of Jesus' power flowed through prayer. Something registered with them that, okay, he goes from miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle. 
So what's the common denominator between all these miracles? Prayer, 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 prayer. Read it. Jesus withdrew to a place of prayer, comes back out of the place of prayer, kaboom. Power, kingdom, purpose, all is released. And so we have to learn how to pray, the essentials of prayer. I'm not going to teach on prayer, even though I love to teach on prayer, but I'll just give you, these are not in any order, but what prayers are, prayers oftentimes it's a posture. So prayer is listening. When you pray, you listen. Lord, what do you have to say to me? Speak over my life. Speak over me. Lord, give me wisdom. Take time to listen. Take time to listen. Prayer is listening. Prayer is asking. Asking. What is it that you need? What is it that you want me to do? Asking. Prayer is acknowledging. Acknowledging what? Lord, I know it's really bad, but I thank you that you're bigger than these circumstances. Acknowledging who he is. Acknowledging who he is. Acknowledging who you are. This is a habit you got to develop, Christian. You have to acknowledge who you are. You have to acknowledge yourself as a son and a daughter. You have to. That's the two things. This guy, I don't know if I shared the story, but I think I just did. But the guy who passed away, and he said, what's his biggest lament? And he says, Christians don't know who they are, and they leave their harvest in the field. They don't know who they are, and they leave their harvest in the field, and they're both interconnected. Because we don't know who we are, we leave our harvest in the field. Because we don't know who we are, we don't know what actually is ours. And so if we don't know what's yours, you don't go after it. If somebody told you there's, there's, you know, there's gold in a field and they told you where the gold was, what would you do? You'd go there, right? But what if they told you, you, you they, they, it's in this field, but you've got to find it? What would you do? Would you sit there and look at it? No, of course you'd say, that field is mine. I'm going to excavate this field. I'm going to take it down, whatever i got to do, but I'm going to find what's mine. That's the goal. This is what God calls us to. So prayer is listening, prayer is asking, prayer is acknowledging who he is, who we are. Prayer is also acknowledging where you're at. This is important. We oftentimes, we go, well, I don't really want God to know where I'm at. Read the Psalms and you'll see David acknowledging where he's at. He's in a bad place. He's upset, he's mad, he's angry, he's hurt, but he's acknowledging it. It's okay to acknowledge where you're at. Jesus told the disciples, my soul is poured out unto death. He acknowledged what he was going through. He didn't ignore it. It's okay in prayer to acknowledge, Lord, I'm not doing too good here. I'm really freaking out, you know. It's okay to start, you know, to acknowledge that. But what's not okay is that you stay there. So in the acknowledgement, if you read again the Psalms, you'll see the pattern where he acknowledged it, and then he goes into worship, and then he goes into prayer, and then he goes into thanksgiving. He's acknowledging him. And prayer, another aspect of prayer is receiving, learning to receive. Prayer is receiving, 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 letting someone pray over you, letting the Spirit pray over you, letting the Father speak over you, speaking words of life over yourself. That's receiving. How do we pray? You need a margin. Prayer doesn't magically happen in case you've not figured that out. I wish it did. I wish all of a sudden all time stopped and it was like, now is the time to pray. But it doesn't work like that. You have to create a margin. You have to cut the time out. If you don't make, you don't make time, you take it. You have to take the time to pray. If you don't, it never will happen. Then you need to press into prayer. You need to pursue prayer. Press into what he says. That's the point. You want to learn how to pray, get around people who pray. Get around people who actually you can see, whoa, when this person prays, I feel power. Something's shifting when they're praying. And then you learn to pray off of that. Begin to follow the Spirit. Different ways of doing that. Number three, thankfulness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on thankfulness. I'm going to move through this right now. But thankfulness, because we just talked all last week about thankfulness. Thankfulness relieves worry. Thankfulness relieves stress. 
Thankfulness is focusing on what you have and not what you don't. So I'm going to jump down to number four, and it's to center on good things. And so I'm going to show you spell check in action. That's supposed to be psychology, not physics. So physics says guided imagery. I've typed in psychology, misspelled it, and it spelled corrected it to physics. So anyway, thank you, spell check. So physics, psychology says it's guided imagery. So what does it mean? It means center on good things. So what the psychologist will tell you is stop thinking about your problems and think about all the good things. Well, the Bible's been saying that for a long time, much longer than the psychological profession. The psychology profession has been saying it. And so here it is in 4.8. It says, finally, believers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are worthy of respect, whatever things are right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely, brings peace, whatever is admirable, whatever is a good report, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, continually think on these things. The things which you have learned, here's another one, he gives you a grid, he tells you some principles by which you should filter your thoughts, and then he also goes into this, the things that you have learned. So the things that you are learning here today, the things that you learn when you're instructed in the scriptures, the things that you learn in and see, and the things that you watch other people do, successful people, Christians do, in practice, do those things. So the things that we're taught, the things that we have learned, and the things that we've watched mirrored to us or modeled for us, do those things. And then he hears the, here's the promise. If you do those things, then the peace will be with you. But the top part, he gives you a filter for your thoughts. He says, well, when, when you're thinking about things and your mind's like holding you hostage, you have to ask yourself, is what I'm thinking about true? That's the biggest one of all. Is what I'm thinking about true? I don't feel, I just keep thinking that God doesn't love me. I just keep thinking that God's going to just destroy me and he's going to just let all this stuff happen to me. And I just keep thinking that. Is that true? No, that is absolutely not true. So why are you thinking about it? Whatever things are true. I don't feel like this is going to happen. I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't feel like I'm a daughter. I don't feel like I'm a son. I don't feel like I have a purpose. I don't have to feel like I have a direction. Is that true? No. None of that is true. So why are you thinking about it? The question is, we take the question, is anything honorable? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? And here's two big ones. If you want to be admired, think about admirable things. If you want to become an excellent person, think about excellent things. What does excellence look like? Think about that. Anything praiseworthy, anything God has done that is good in your life, think on that. So this is the filter for how we think. Because a lot of times worry comes from the way that we're thinking. Stress comes from worry, which again comes back to what we're thinking. And so we center our thoughts on good things. Some of you guys need to take that home, Philippians 4.8, on your iPhone, your digital Bible, or on your Bible, and you need to circle that. And you need to ask yourself, what am I thinking about that's not true? You know, when you're in these situations, you need to use that as a grid. And the last one, and I'm going to close right here, is to be content. Next slide. Next one is to be content. Contentment is very difficult. Can we agree? Contentment is hard, especially in the United States of America. In case you're wondering, Black Friday is not designed to make you feel content at all. It's designed to make you feel discontent. And like a loser, you're like, man, I got a HD TV, but I don't have a 4K TV. What the heck is 4K? But that's the new that's the new TV that's out now. This is 4K, right? So now you're a loser if you have an HD. Like, man, I just took me three years to get up to an HD, and now I'm a loser because I don't have the 4K. <laughs> it's always this drive of discontent. 
And that's how our culture has focused us on that. And so we have to think and perceive differently. Paul says this, I don't have, I, I have, not that I have ever, and excuse me, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content. Contentment is learned. Okay? You're not content by nature. You're not. Your children aren't content by nature, are they? Ever. They're not content. We're not content. We always want something more. So we learn contentment. We learn how to live with nothing and learn with how to live with everything. We learn how to uh, live, uh, live we, I have learned the secret of living in every situation. It's in a different translation than the one I'm used to reading. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is on a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or little, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, he's understanding contentment comes from understanding his identity. It comes from understanding who he's in. I don't need anything because I have Jesus. If I seek first the kingdom of God and what is right for him, all this stuff's going to happen for me. Inevitably, it will. The things that he has for you will happen. Proverbs says, so more is not always better. Better with little in the reverence of the Lord is greater than great is greater than great treasure with a lot of trouble. So it's better to be, you know, have less uh, treasure and be happy than it is to have more treasure and be discontent. Ecclesiastes says this, one handful of rest and patience is better than two fists full of stuff and chasing everything that you need to buy. You ever notice that when you buy stuff, you have to maintain it? You have to store it? You have to clean it? Right? And you have to pay for it? And you have to insure it? And then it gets old? You know? That's what happens with stuff. And it's not that stuff is bad. But what ends up happening is in rather than living with stuff, we live to have stuff. And look, I'm an American, born and bred, right? I am a product of this culture, right? I was raised as a little boy. So watch, I want that G.I. Joe. Mommy, I want that G.I. Joe. Life would not be, life is empty without that G.I. Joe. I'm, I'm taught the, the culture, the American concept of discontentment. I'm taught that. So I understand it. But the way of the kingdom is different. It's different, right? So we come into Christ and we realize the treasure that we have in Him. And that's where we go. And so we, it, what does it mean to be content? It means you can admire without the need to acquire. So let's just try, we guys can try an exercise in contentment. Go shopping, try on those really cool clothes and all that other stuff. Take a picture of yourself and admire it without the need to acquire. Ouch, that hurt. But if I try it on, man, I'm going to want it. Yeah, right? So that's the idea. Uh, it's hard, I'm telling you. Contentment is learned. We don't have contentment. We have to learn. And worry comes from we're not content. What will people think of me if I don't have the 4K TV? What will people think of me if I'm driving a used car? Oh, my gosh. What will people think of me if I have last year's shoes on? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, are, you are more valuable than your valuables. And your self-worth is not your net worth. It's true. Your value is in Him. Your value is in Him. So true. And what's amazing is that when you find your value in Him, when Jesus gives to those that have value in Him, He gives to those. The blessings of the Lord are sure, and He adds no sorrow to them. He doesn't give you sins and sorrow, but that's your values in Him. Your self-worth is that you're a daughter. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You're a daughter of Jesus. Are you kidding me? You're a son of the highest. 
There's a question for you all week. Lord, what does that mean? What the heck does that mean? You guys going to get annoyed at me because I keep telling you to ask questions? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you stopped asking questions. Keep telling me to ask questions. Say contentment. The Bible tells us not to worry. Jesus deals with the heart. Heart's always an issue of value. It's always an issue of identity, who we are and who he is. And Paul gives us the practical application. And one of the keys is joy. Prayer. Contentment. These are the keys. So I just challenge you to practice this stuff next time you're worrying. And that'll probably be this week. That might even be in about an hour. Right? But just to practice it. And a real easy one is just joy. Just get joy. Just get in the spirit. Just begin to thank God. Just begin to worship God. Just begin to help people that, aren't, that, don't, that are less fortunate than you or help people through their problems. And your problems, it's amazing how your problems disappear because you're helping other people. And you're going to have to do it time and again. And let me free you because a lot of people, I, I deal with people a lot, and people feel self-condemned because they're like, why can't I stop worrying? I stop worrying for an hour, and then I'm worrying again. And then I stop worrying for an hour, and I'm like, do it as many times as you need to, right? You know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go back and forth, particularly if you're going through stuff. It's normal. You go back and forth. But that doesn't mean you stay there. You understand? You've got a choice to stay in one of these places. So you choose to stay in one of these places. Anyway, I love you guys. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to know if you're a Christian that these promises are for you. They're for you. Don't be content with the Bible tells us never to covet, but it tells us to covet the, covet the excellent things. That's what Christianity tells us. Contentment in this world is not content for who I am as a follower of Christ. Don't be content to not to stand on the outside of his promises. Press in. Be content with this world, but not be content with who you are and where you're going and what God says you can have. And if you're here this morning, I want you to understand that these blessings and this peace that passes understanding is for you. It can't be purchased because it was already bought. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what I want to do is give you an opportunity, invite you into this family so that you too can have access to something you can't get any other way. So we're going to just close with a prayer. And if that's you, just open your heart as we pray together. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And so Jesus will come into your heart. He'll forgive you. He'll make all things new. He'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And that's take away guilt, take away shame, and give you life. And so let's just close this service together and we'll just pray. And then I'm going to speak a blessing and then we're going to dismiss. And so let's just pray together. And if you are here and that's you, just open your heart and pray with us. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. I may not understand it, but I choose to believe it. I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Say, is that it? No, that's the start of it. Hey, we've got an amazing prayer team over here.